From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and bits of audio that boomerang around the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. The best communication is a two-way affair. Marco! Hello! With each back and forth, the conversation becomes richer, deeper. Call and response has even been known to start revolutions. But the conversation doesn't have to be loud to have an impact. Today on ReSound, we bring you three stories of quiet, almost overlooked calls that have yielded the most unexpected responses. I'm talking time travel, a phone booth in the desert, and the audible fade of a small southern town. Stay with us. The point of placing a classified ad is, of course, to solicit a response. Maybe you're trying to fill a position, sell your lawnmower, or find a cat sitter. If so, the classified section is for you. Mostly now, they're online, Craigslist, Facebook, etc. But old school classifieds still exist. Case in point, our next story about a few lines of type that became a touchstone for hope and redemption. Here's Lynn Levy with Reply All hosts Alex Goldman and PJ Vote. So the story kind of starts with this ad in a magazine called Backwoods Home Magazine in 1997. Backwoods Home Magazine is published in Oregon, rural Oregon, and um, published out of the back of a Subway sandwich shop. Wait, that's their one distribution point? That's where they make the magazine. And is it still coming out to this day? It is. It remains a published magazine to this very day. It's like a lot of tips for like home canning and like how to make your own um, bow and arrow and like what to do if the apocalypse comes and it, you know, it Wait, covers it really all those what things. what to do if the apocalypse comes? Uh, I mean, it's not limited to what to do if the apocalypse comes, but it would be useful to have if the apocalypse came. It's like survi- there's a survivalist There's a survivalist to vibe it. to it. So the this magazine is, you know, is about to basically it's like late at night. The magazine is about to go to the publisher. The the guy running the magazine, Dave, says to his friend, John, uh, John, we have extra space in the magazine. Like, I screwed up. We need some stuff to fill space. And John says, like, again, dude, all right, I'll put something in there. Why don't I place some personal ads? So he places some personal ads. He places one that's like crazy poet looking for drunken, sassy lady for lifetime of adventurous fulfillment. I'm not quite right, but... Was he the crazy poet in this formulation? He was the crazy poet in this formulation. And then he places another one, and the other one is, like, wanted... Wanted. Somebody to go back in time with me. This is not a joke. P.O. Box 322, Oakview, California, 93022. You'll get paid after we get back. Must bring your own weapons. Safety not guaranteed. I've only done this once before. So, very short and sweet, um, drops it into the magazine. I was expecting maybe two dozen responses to the personal, and I was expecting three or four responses that I thought I might find funny to the time travel ad. 
He was hoping to find girlfriends, so he really wanted people to answer the personal ad. Um, but he thought, like, maybe three or four people will read the time travel ad and respond, and that'll be fun to read. But when he went to the post office... There was this tsunami of letters filling up the P.O. box. They were almost all about the time travel ad. People were really, really into it, and they had all kinds of questions, like from the basics... How are we going? Why is there danger? Why do we need weapons? What kind of weapon should I bring? To the smallest, nitpickiest details. Will there be toilet paper or do I have to bring my own? There were people with these kind of elaborate backstories. We saw your ad recently while here in jail. We are all felons and would like to go back and not get caught. Can you get us back in time from where you are or do we need to travel to California. If so, that might pose a problem since we are stuck here for a while. But maybe you could go back and change things for us. And people who, I mean, who knows what some of these people were up to. Yes, I want to time travel to 1984. My time machine was stolen and I am stuck in 2010. Thank you. (laughs) John expected things to taper off after a while, but they really didn't. The letters kept coming. He got more and more responses from, like, almost every state, all these different countries. From every continent, including Antarctica. This little ad from the back of this little magazine had clearly escaped its, uh, <laughs> its humble beginnings. It became an internet meme. The internet. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, had found his ad. Somebody had put his ad on the internet. My understanding is that it started with the uh, YTMND site. Yes, that seems to be true. What's YTMND? Uh, so this is an aside that's so worth telling. Okay. <laughs> in the in the like late 90s, early 2000s, do you remember there was like a movie in which uh, Sean Connery play, is, like a, is like a professor and he's, he's teaching like uh, young black men how to write poems and shit? No, but I know that... I know that movie archetype. I didn't know Sean Connery did one of those. So he did one of those, and at the end of the movie, he says to one of them, You're the man now, dog! No. Yeah, that's pretty, no. That's pretty good. So that's this, bad. So this, I mean, that's a bad thing to for them to have done. So this guy created a website called YTMND.com, You're the man now, dog.com, oh, okay. which was a still image of Sean Connery with the with the text, You're the man now, dog, superimposed over it, and the an auto-playing version of that quote. Okay. I feel like this is what people who hate the internet think the internet is. <laughs> All right. Okay. So essentially, the guy who made the Sean Connery website, he made that site into a community called YTMND where people could upload the same kind of thing, like an image with some text over it and music underneath it and that's where John's ad ended up. So it's timetraveler.ytmnd.com. Loading site. And then it's... <laughs> well, I don't get the music. So whoever put this up here imagined that this is what the guy who wrote the thing was like. And he was this like is this the, song? He was like this song. And if you look at this, there's like a, a picture of a blonde-haired, mulleted guy next to the original ad. Uh, the P.O. box is blacked out. And then it uh, it's Take It to the Limit. And I don't know who sings this song, but 
All right. <laughs> so John tells me that he's seen this ad in a bunch of different places on the web. The way that things do, it kind of made its way from place to place. And he says 18 years after he first placed this ad, the letters are still coming. His P.O. box keeps filling up. It seems like a lot of people who write back to him get the joke, kind of, but some take it really, really seriously. Uh, Some of them were people that um, asked me to go back in time, and there would be like my son committed suicide. Would you go back to such and such a night and stop him? Or my daughter was killed in an auto accident. Would you go back to the day before and stop it? While I was on the phone with him, John was pulling letters out of his pile and reading them to me. Here's another one that's interesting. As to whom it may concern, I have read your advertisement to go back in time, and that's in quotes. I am extremely interested in this and would not even require payment. I will not need a weapon and, in, and in fact, would like to travel back to 1991 or previously to change the events leading to the death of my husband for which I am in prison. I don't care about my safety. In fact, if I cannot change the events of the past, I prefer not to even survive. Hmm. Please contact me by return mail with further information about this possibility. I found these letters so interesting. Like, I just kept thinking about them. Like, each one seemed like a window into somebody's life story, but there's only a little bit of it in the letter. Like this woman in prison... What made her write? What did she think was going to happen? Um, okay, Robin, can you hear me okay? Yes, ma'am. Okay, can you just um, just introduce yourself so that I can record it and just say who you are and, and just um, maybe where you are, a little something about yourself? Um, okay. Um, my name is Robin Radcliffe. And I am at the Utah State Prison in Draper, Utah. Yeah, so Robin, um, yeah, she's in prison in Utah. And she had served about 17 years of uh, a life sentence when she first saw the time travel ad. And did you think, like... Okay, 20% this is real, like 30%, 70%? Actually, I thought maybe 20%. I thought eh, somebody just probably putting it in there just to get mail. But 20%, that little sliver of possibility, it got to her. It, it just stuck there, and I was like, I couldn't get it out. Once it, it got in, I just couldn't get it out. I couldn't sleep. Right after that, I I didn't want to eat, and then I said, I have to respond. I had to write. You know, it's just something that I needed to do. After you wrote the letter, how did you feel? Like, did you feel relief or or hopeful or, like? Um, After I wrote it, I felt um, a little giddy. Just giddy at the thought that maybe, 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 maybe she might be able to undo the worst things she'd ever done. See, Robin is in prison because of the part she played in her husband's murder. According to her, it started with a mistake. I made the mistake, and it was a horrendous mistake. Uh, um, I 
met someone and I committed adultery. That mistake set into motion this kind of chain of events, which is complicated. But basically, Robin and her boyfriend, the guy she cheated with, took out a hit on Robin's husband. They hired a couple of hitmen. They decided to have him killed. And Robin's job was to go to her house, go to the window in her daughter's bedroom, unlock it, prop it open, and the hitmen would come in through the window. So they showed up. They came through the window. She went to the living room, kind of stayed there. And then they went into her husband's bedroom and just bashed his head in. Oof. I know the exact moment I could have changed everything. All I had to do was go to my daughter's bedroom, close the window. They came in through the window? Yes. She sounds sorry. But why didn't she stop it when she could stop it? Yeah. Well, okay, so the media painted one kind of portrait of Robin. They said that she was kind of this, like, scheming, money-hungry wife who was trying to get her husband's insurance policy. It was like $100,000 insurance policy. Robin doesn't see it that way. She says that's totally ludicrous. That was not her motive. So then, Robin, why didn't you do anything to stop it? I don't know. I... I have questioned myself on that so many times in all these years. I have laid awake nights without end, sat up all day, sat on, sat there and how, who, you know, how could I have done this? Um, where was my mind? Where was I? What was I thinking? What was I not thinking? Um, it, it's the worst moment of my life. Now, Robin wouldn't use this as an excuse, but I don't know. It's helpful to know the context. She had a tough life. She had a tough childhood. She tried to kill herself when she was 12. At the time of the crime, she was at a particularly low point. Um, My daughter and I were pregnant at the same time, and I was terrified of everything. She says that she was being abused by her husband. She had been on a bunch of medication to deal with depression. She had just gone off her medication. So it was definitely... A dark, dark time for her. I talked to one of the my, the people I knew then, a lady I worked with, and she said, we didn't even recognize you. You know, you, um, it was like you were a zombie. There's always this question in time travel fantasies of sort of where to drop in. Like if you had a really good friendship and it went awry, it went sour, and you wanted to go back and save it, you know, would you go back to kind of the last knockdown, drag-out fight, or would you go back further to, like, the time that your friend was sick and you said you would bring her chicken soup and then you forgot you didn't bring her chicken soup? 
Or, you know, is there something else? Were there like little times along the way where you said something? Maybe you didn't even know that was the thing that was going to blow it all up. But if you could go back there, you could fix it all. You have to pick a place. And in Robin's case, even with all the problems she was having, the problems with her mental health, the abuse that she said she was suffering, she didn't want to go back and try to fix any of that. She wanted to go back to the moment that she opened the window. I thought you might say you would go back to the point where you decided to to cheat on your husband and, and then none I, of this would have unfurled, you know? At first, that's what I originally wrote. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, then I, there would be nothing. What is it? What does she mean there would be nothing? I think what it means is because of the affair, I mentioned before she got pregnant and she had a son who she gave up for adoption, but who she's really proud of, really glad she brought into the world. My son is, I I only know this because my daughter has found my son. Mm. He became a nurse practitioner working with the elderly, (laughs) and he's an advocate for the elderly so that they are not abused. And so he contributes to society. Where is he now? Um, he lives in Texas. Um, I don't want him to. I didn't want him raised being passed from family to family with a parent, you know, a mother in prison. I wanted him to be raised with two parents that could raise him in a home that he didn't have that stigma. So... He doesn't know me at all. Did Did you ever think to respond to like to that woman in jail and just say I'm I'm sorry this isn't real? I don't know. I think I just I don't like letting people down. A story like Robin's wasn't what John signed up for. This ad was something he dropped into the magazine at the last minute, late at night, without a second thought. The the ad wasn't place there to have people ask me to save them from jail or, you know, keep a loved one alive or or anything like that. He hasn't closed his P.O. box, even if at this point he doesn't always want to read the letters. The women in the office wanted to read them. I said, you can read them. I don't want to hear anything about them. Really? And then I'm hearing from... Yeah, and, I, and, and I'm hearing from across the, the building, John, you've got to read this. John, this woman is saying this and that. And, and, I, and, and I'm yelling back, Rhoda, I don't want to hear it. I just don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear what that woman has to say because I can't do anything. I mean, it hurts me to, to, to think that I can't do anything for these people. And I feel like I've let people down. Do you think there's something about him? Like, he seems like such just like... He seems like strikingly unqualified to do the job that he accidentally gave himself. Well, I don't know why you think he's any less qualified than anyone else. I'm not qualified to do that. But like, do you think that there's anything about, besides the fact that he's a person who likes jokes, like, is there anything, is there anything about him that made him the person who did this? He's not qualified. But if there's anything that makes him qualified, like he's, um, he seems to me like a tremendously regretful person. I mean, he at least knows what regret means. Um, not that he can do anything about it. Did he want to go back? Mm-hmm. 
if you thought about if it was real, what would you, where would you go if you had a, if you had time travel? I'd like to go back in time. This is my first choice. Yeah. This is, I'd like to go back in time to when I was a little boy mm-hmm. or a teen, young teenager and talk to myself. And really? convince myself that I am from the future, that I am myself from the future. And I'm going to give you a few tips. And, um, and I tell myself, you know, not to worry about my, my dad, who was an alcoholic and abusive, and he scared me. And I probably, I should have, I was, I was 16 or 17 before I stood up to him. Man, if you could just go back in time with your therapist to, like, <laughs> when you were, what's a good age for that, like 10? Just get right in there and, and wipe out all those neuroses before they really have a time to, to get their claws in. Like, that would be a good use of time travel. Yeah, it would be. I'd try to clear up all the doubts and insecurities I had then. That would be the first thing. Second thing would be go back and see dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had a sort of like a weird thought the other day thinking about this piece, which is like the the standard response to time machine questions is like, go back and change something, which I'm surprised that more people don't want to go back and just relive something good. Like whatever what the moment in your life where you were like, this feels great. Oh, it just feels like it hurts. Like that idea hurts. Wouldn't it be? But what if you could, PJ, if you could like keep that moment in a box next to your bed on a loop, and any time you wanted, you could just, like, dip back into it for a little pick-me-up. Wouldn't that be nice? I don't think... I think it'd be, like, a hot shower that you couldn't get out of. Or that, like, (laughs) getting out of would get worse every single time. Don't you think? Yeah, and then you'd just be stuck there. Yeah, you'd, like, find me, like, sitting on the couch with, like, just, like, cobweb drool over my face. Like, yeah, I guess I just wouldn't come back. I don't have a specific... There's not a specific moment that I would go back and... You you literally... Your son was born... um, month and a half ago. <laughs> I fainted. <laughs> I was, I mean, it, what, I would faint again. Oh. I'm not against it. That was The Time Traveler and the Hitman by Lynn Levy, PJ Vogt, and Alex Goldman for the podcast Reply All. You got mail. Don't reply all, just reply to us. Questions, comments, rants, calls, and responses can be sent to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up after the break, the humble obituary notice broadcasts the slow but steady loss of a small southern town's way of life. Stay with us. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're sharing stories of call and response. It's a couple minutes before 4 o'clock here at WPAQ. To get you up to news time, here's Johnny Vipperman and the Dixie Ramblers. In Mount Airy, North Carolina, population 10,400, there's a tiny radio station at 7.40 a.m. on the dial. WPAQ has been around since a gallon of gas cost 16 cents and Citation won the Triple Crown. Citation by Six Lane Plus. It broadcasts old time and gospel music, firebrand local preachers, and daily obituary notices. Thrice daily, in fact. This is how the citizens of Mount Airy are able to keep abreast of what's going on in their town and respond in kind, calling with condolences or bringing a plate of pie to the bereaved. Here's a brief excerpt 
of the story. Staff and management of WPAQ extend our condolences to the police. But anyway, it's don't right forget now that this afternoon. Then we want to welcome all of our widows and widowers today. Thank you for being here. We have a meal prepared for all of our widows and widowers right after church today. We're honoring them. On behalf of the staff and management here at WPAQ, we send out our prayers and condolences to those who lost loved ones this time. Listen to the complete aerial obituaries over WPAQ Monday through Saturday at 7.40 a.m. in their condensed form at 1.30 I don't want anybody to pass away, but I enjoy reading obituaries because I, I like to put a lot of reverence into it, and I want the family to be proud of what we're doing and be thankful. That was an excerpt from Obituary Notice produced by Peter Meanwell for the program Between the Ears from BBC Radio 3. Because of the rights we get from the BBC, we could only play this small sample of the story for you. But you can hear the entire story at thirdcoastfestival.org. On this episode of ReSound, we're celebrating the ritual of call and response, especially the quiet calls, which brings me to an old question with a new twist. If a phone rings in the desert and no one's there to hear it, did it really ring? Here's Joe Rosenberg. Okay, so this story starts out back in the mid-90s in Phoenix, where Godfrey Daniels... Uh, My given name is Godfrey Daniels, but I go by Doc. He's heading back home after seeing this band, Girl Trouble. And after the concert, someone hands him a copy of their zine. Remember zines? If not, don't worry. They're kind of like a pre-internet miniature magazine. So as I was walking home, I was kind of flipping through it, and uh, on about the third or fourth page, there were a couple of letters to the editor, and one of them mentioned that there was a phone booth in the Mojave Desert, uh, miles and miles from any pavement, just sitting by itself. And this, for Doc, just made no sense. I, I, I wasn't sure that I believed it. Why, uh, why not? Well, I didn't have any reason to believe it. I mean, I don't know if... In the, in the age of cell phones, if it's the same. But when you were out in the desert in those days, you were on your own. You couldn't call people. So the idea that there could be this phone booth just sitting out in an uncontactable place, it was kind of like if somebody was on the moon, you know, and you could talk to somebody on the moon. Where did he say it was exactly? And like, what was the nearest recognizable landmark? He didn't say. It was a really short little paragraph. Um, There wasn't any solid information, really, other than the number. And so when Doc got home, he thought, okay, why not give it a shot? And I jabbed in the number, and uh, and it just rang. And I let it ring for a long time. And I was just imagining making a phone ring out where, presumably, no one could hear it except the coyotes. But then there was also, in the back of your mind, the thought, what if... Like, what if somebody's wandering by? Who would be out there? Who would pick up? It just really grabbed me. And so I hung up, and then I just kept thinking about it. I kept thinking about it all night long. I was thinking about it as I fell asleep, and it just it just somehow got me into its clutches. And so the next morning? I called again. I just kind of became obsessed. 
Soon, Doc found himself calling the phone booth all the time. When friends visited his house, he'd twist their arm and make them call it. He even put up a post-it note in the bathroom mirror. It just said, did you remember to call the Mojave Desert today? But it turned out I didn't need it because I used to call many times a day. <laughs> like how many times? If I was supposed to be working, I was probably calling at least once an hour. And again, this is all assuming that it actually existed, which I had no proof of. Like on speakerphone? Or like you would st- stop everything? N- no, 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 because that would require explanations. I would just, you know, have it, have the, the phone kind of cradle against my ear, you know, just listening to it ring. Doc knew it was weird to keep calling a number with no one on the other end. But if he was ever pressed about it, he'd say it was like being a ham radio operator. One little person sending a signal as far as he could into the ether, wondering if another little person was out there, listening in, waiting to be contacted in that uncontactable place. So I figured I would be doing this forever. I really didn't think anybody would ever pick up the phone. But then, just one month after he started calling? Just doing my daily call, and uh, I got a busy signal. No way. So Doc actually managed to record that call. I look like like I'm an idiot, because I keep saying, wow. (laughs) No way. And, uh... I thought, well, I, I must have misdialed. I had to dial it. So I dialed it again. Then it was a busy signal again. <laughs> and I, I realized, okay, either something's gone wrong with the, the phone company here, or somebody is using the Mojave phone booth right now. I was totally hyperactive. My main thing was I didn't want them to get away. Like I was thinking, I need to catch it right when they hang up that phone. So I just redial, redial, and then it rang. And uh, it rang, it rang four or five times. And I thought, oh crap. And then I heard a voice say, hello. Sadly, Doc was only able to properly record his own words at this now historic moment. But as many times as I had called, I had given remarkably little thought, if any, to what I would say, you know. And I said, uh, Hello, uh, are you in the Mojave Desert? She said, yeah. And I said, You are? Okay, this is going to sound like a strange question. Why are you in the middle of the Mojave Desert? She said, I'm making my calls. Oh, like you live out there and you don't have a phone. I gotta say, when I looked at the transcript, it was kind of funny, because, like, um, you think everything's cool if you're like... So what do you do out there? And she's like, cinder mining? What do you do with cinder? And she's like, cinder blocks. <laughs> <laughs> and, you're like, and you're like, that's so cool! That is so cool! That's just so cool that somebody finally answered. And uh, she said that uh, she never heard the phone ring before. And can, you, can you tell me her name? Yeah, her, name, uh, her name's Laureen. Laureen, it's nice to meet you. If the phone's ever ringing again, pick it up. It'll be me. All right. Nice meeting you. Bye-bye. Was there, was there any sense of disappointment? No. No. Disappointment about what? Not at all. Well, let me put it this way. It's almost kind of like the idea that this phone is ringing out there in the desert and anyone mm-hmm. could pick up. But then finally someone picks up and it's just Lorene. No, no, no. See, I look at it the the exact opposite way. 
somebody did pick up and i and i had no i had no right to expect anyone ever would so this was great to hear to hear a human voice in place of the ringing you know i mean this was this was this was a payoff it just encouraged me more and the instant i hung up i kicked myself because i had forgotten to ask her what was probably the most important question which is where was the phone booth but of course i had no way i had no way to get in touch with her except to find the thing so Doc calls around, does some sleuthing, and a few months later gets his hands on the equivalent of an X marks the spot map showing the supposed location of the Mojave phone booth. So I thought, oh, we're all set. So my friend and I took off and traveled all day to the Mojave Desert. And this is in the middle of August, and so it's scorching hot, just scorching hot. Basically, as far as you could see, you saw Joshua trees. And then we saw this little dirt path that was marked, you know, danger, danger, warning, not maintained, blah, blah, blah. That was the road we were supposed to take. So we were, you know, we were just going along and going along. And at first I thought, oh, this is not bad at all. But the further along that we went, the road would narrow. And the thing was that the sun was going down. And in the daytime, you've got these grand, huge vistas. And you kind of have a sense of where you are. But when the darkness drops, it's just whatever you can see right in front of you. And we were ringed by storms. There was lightning almost in every direction. So then I started to think, uh, if we have any kind of a problem, unless we do find the phone booth, we have no way of you know, letting people know we're really in trouble. But at a certain point, just barely in the reach of the headlights, I thought I saw a line of telephone poles. And there was a little, a little jut to the left, and then a little jut to the right. And I brought the van to a stop with the headlights just shining right on the Mojave phone booth. It was really, it was really quite a moment. And there's bullet holes in it. There's no glass. It's all busted out. Um, it's kind of a wreck, you know? But to me, it was just, it was beautiful. I needed to hear that phone ring. I needed to hear what I had been causing to happen all this time out there. So I called, uh, I called my friend's pager, and here I am out in the Mojave surrounded by Joshua trees and lightning and desert. And now there's a familiar It was just, and it was so loud. It was really loud. The bell was just crazy loud. For, for me, that was kind of the moment, is hearing that phone ring. It was everything that I had been imagining when I was calling. After that, Doc thought the story was over. He did keep calling the booth. After all, someone else could pick up. But that was just for him. He never really expected anyone else to care. Until he did something which would not have seemed risky back in 1997, but which today is obviously very, very dangerous. He gave the booth a web page. And in those days, the internet, there wasn't that much on it. So I thought that was about as far as it would go. But yeah, that's not what happened. Next thing you know, I'd go to my P.O. box and there would be clippings about the Mojave phone booth from newspapers in languages that I didn't read. It just spread. So I thought, well, this is unexpected. And so when Doc and his friends returned to the booth about a year after his initial visit, when they got there, this phone, way out in the middle of nowhere, which Lorraine had said she'd never heard ring, it was ringing off the hook. You didn't have to call anybody. It was just, as soon as you would hang up the phone, it would start ringing again. It was just crazy. You'd pick it up and, you know, 
who's this person going to be? Where are they going to be? And you had no idea it could be somebody from, you know, Vietnam or Iran or just anywhere. Um, some people would call and you couldn't talk to them because they didn't speak English. And again, you know, most of the time it wasn't about the content. You know, you're not really saying anything. It's really not the point. It's just, it's just the connection. An old trucker guy called and I think he just wanted to be listened to. He wanted to tell stories about his trucking days and uh, he didn't ha seem to have anybody to tell him to. How many calls did you end up taking that day? <sighs> it would be over a hundred guaranteed. And, and admittedly, you hear the phone ring, and after a while, it'd be like, you get it. No, you get it. It's your turn. You get it. We eventually had to take it off the hook so we could sleep. And when they put it back on the hook the next morning so they could leave? There wouldn't have been a way to leave in silence. I mean, you, you were, you were going to have to drive. Since it was ringing all the time, you were going to have to drive away from a ringing phone. And people weren't just calling the booth. Mojave Desert phone booth. They were visiting, traveling all the way out to the desert just for the honor of informing callers that yes, the phone booth was real. It's more than real, it's reality. This is from a short documentary made about the booth. It's just a montage of people from all over the place, taking calls from all over the place. We're here, where are you? England? We're from Switzerland, Australia. Right on, bro. You were presenting yourself to the world in a way. Anybody who wanted to could call you. There was no control over who could call that phone. No. No, I don't speak German. You used to work for the circus? So are you quadriplegic or paraplegic? Quad? Wait a minute. You got fired from the circus because your best friend left with somebody else. How long were you in a coma? A couple of weeks. Yeah, me too. I was in a coma for two weeks. Yeah. Everybody wants to tell their story and they want, they want someone to listen to their story. It's kind of fun. You should come out and do this. We're pretty lonely out here. Did you like the fact that it became popular, or would you have preferred it to remain? Um... No, at first I liked it. The, the hesitation came about just because once something like that gets out of control, then then you know that the equal and opposite reaction is going to come. The only question was when. And then uh, in May of 2000, Lorene's brother, on the way out to the mine, stopped and answered the phone, because it was ringing, of course and talked to uh, some guy in England who was, he said he was sitting there with his fiance eating, having tea and crumpets. <laughs> and he talked to him for a little while and then continued on to Lorene's. And then uh, in the morning when they were leaving, the booth was gone. In this case, the equal and opposite reaction had come in the form of the National Park Service. It turned out the booth was almost smack dab in the center of a new national preserve. When the phone had laid dormant, it hadn't been a problem. But park officials hadn't taken kindly to all the new foot traffic, or for that matter, the ringing. By the time Doc figured out what was happening, it was already too late. Did you go out and see this for yourself? No, no, I, I didn't go out until I think about, oh, 2009, 2010, long, long after. I mean, once I knew it was gone, there was, I didn't want to go out. Why not? just be too sad, you know? I mean, had a lot of fun there. <laughs> it, you know, it was funny too is that uh, people did keep going out and they would go and visit the concrete pad <laughs> that the booth had stood on and a guy made a really nice tombstone for the booth and everything that anybody brought out there, the Park Service hauled off 
and uh, eventually they came out and broke up the concrete pad and took that away too. So it was like it was never there? Yeah. When I was there, the only thing left was a few pieces of glass from the broken windows. And people would say, yeah, well, it's not your phone booth. And I would say, yeah, I know, it's not my phone booth, but it's my fault. You know, it wasn't as though I set out to make a phone booth famous, far from it. It's just, had I known, I might not have done it. I mean, I might still, I don't know, but I might not have. Would the booth even hold the same appeal today, given that we can now reach anyone, anywhere? No, I... I I mean, that, that's something that I, that I have thought about, is, is whether it could have happened even five years later. Um, and I just don't think it would have. I mean, that, that was kind of the magic of being in contact in an uncontactable place. And I don't think, that, I don't think you have that feeling now. Did you ever try calling the number again after that? Oh, of course. Come on, Joe. <laughs> of course I did. I mean, they let it ring for a long time. I mean, they left just, even though the phone was not there. But would that even make sense? Because you're not even making a phone ring anymore in the desert. You're just making a kind of a... Sure, I would know that, but still. It would be like listening to a song that meant something to you. I don't know, just... I guess I did just like calling out to the booth and hearing it ring in the end. Mojave Phone Booth was produced by Joe Rosenberg for Snap Judgment. Even though the phone booth isn't standing anymore, the number remains active. And you can still call and talk to strangers via conference call. To get the number, go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Hello? Hey, how's it going? ReSound is not unlike the calls to the Mojave phone booth. Each week we wrap it up and float it out into the world, unsure where, when, or who it will reach. It's always a treat when someone answers to let us know we've been heard. We call, you respond. Now it's your turn. Write us, resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.